Welcome to Alma, the show where we explore emerging social innovations and chat with social innovators. I'm your host, Daniel Weinsberg. Hurricane Katrina, Maria, Debbie, Ernesto, floods in Queensland, Houston, Wisconsin, Brazil, fires in San Diego, South Africa, tsunamis in Indonesia and Japan, volcanic eruptions in Guatemala, Krakatoa, and Hawaii. The list of natural disasters and their impacts are growing by the year. Whether you comply with or deny climate change, there is no one who thinks that the natural disasters citizens around the globe are facing are not a real threat. So, after each disaster, we humans do what we do. We band together and rebuild. And, as Naomi Klein outlined in her book, Shock Doctrine, many times these natural disasters actually set the stage for opportunists to come in and exploit the demolished communities by, by buying land for pennies on the dollar and turning the tsunami-ravaged coastlines into resorts, which thus shifts the traditional economy to one that relies on tourism, which reduces the community's ability to be self-sufficient. Not only have disaster relief efforts perpetuated this ugly aspect of consumer capitalism, but the goods, the dollars, and the hours donated tend to be based on this top-down model of aid that creates unintended externalities such as huge amounts of plastic waste and fraud. Luckily, there are many social innovators dedicated to changing the disaster relief paradigm to one that uses these opportunities presented in post-disaster scenarios to increase community resilience, not corporate subservience. In this episode, we talk to Will Higard, the founder and director of the Footprint Project. They're a social venture dedicated to helping disaster-ravaged communities leapfrog existing energy infrastructure by leveraging recent developments in green technologies. going to get into what you're doing but you just came back from Puerto Rico and we've all been hearing a lot about Puerto Rico so can you tell us a little bit about what it's like right now over there what you were doing there yeah I was just down there for a couple weeks Uh, we're working specifically on a renewable energy nanogrid project in Vieques which is a small island off the coast of Puerto Rico one of the hardest uh, hit by Hurricane Maria and the I mean the island itself is pretty pretty much in long-term recovery mode, right? So the, the lights are back on for all practical purposes. The grid is back up and running, though it's extremely vulnerable, and there are still outages. Um, you know, before the storm, even the grid was, was not great. So after the storm, it's been a long road to recovery. I'd say when they're now, you know, in that preparedness, space where they're not doing immediate relief or you know reconstruction so to speak okay so you 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 said we there who is we you're with the footprint project who are you guys what do you do totally we're a small uh social impact organization that focuses on sustainable disaster recovery so footprint basically displaces 
diesel generators for relief and recovery operations after disasters. We basically operate under the principle that if we're going to respond and recover from disasters, we might as well build back greener. Uh, and we do that with nanogrids. So instead of spending money on diesel, standalone diesel generator systems and gas to power critical infrastructure, shelters, health clinics, uh, fire stations, all of the stuff that needs to happen after a disaster, we think can be powered with a solar storage system or a collection of hybrid renewable energy generation instead of standalone fossil. Okay, so you're using the these crises that happen as an opportunity for sustainable development instead of perpetuating the, the system of fossil fuels. Exactly. I mean, the basic premise is if we can't build back better from these disasters, we're not going to be able to build back. And so until you guys showed up and started doing your work, what's been the typical model of disaster relief um, outside of just you know, diesel generators. I know there's a lot of other products sent and how are these actually negatively impacting the communities that we're trying to First support? of all, I, I just want to say that for, you know, the majority of the humanitarian aid is, is really well intentioned, right? So people want, people see a crisis and they want to help and they send what they can. And uh, in many cases, it really does provide uh, a significant benefit to the affected community, right? So whether that's, uh, you know, food aid, cans, canned goods, bottled water, uh, all of those immediate relief items that people need after uh, kind of the, after things fall apart. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of money and time and energy and resources get spent delivering short-term relief items, right? So the plastic water bottles, the, the plastic tarps for roofing, the, and, and for our um, niche, the diesel generators, right? So people spend, organizations and individuals send lots of short-term relief items that do you know, help in the short-term, but then once the, the news media moves on, the, you know, the big aid organizations stop being able to fund their opportunity, their programs long-term. Once the, the train kind of rolls out, the affected communities that are still dealing with recovery for sometimes, you know, three, five years, they're really not left with the tools needed to develop, you know, resilient communities after those storms to make them more, you know, more, able to withstand the stronger storms that we're going to see in the future. So there, I, I want to be clear that while the traditional aid and aid, you know, industry operates on a, the, the belief that we can and should help. And that's a good thing. Uh, there are ways we can do it better. And we at footprint believe that displacing diesel in the response and recovery context is one of the best ways we can advance thoughtful aid. So one of the things you mentioned was that, you know, these disasters, they're coming more frequent and they're becoming more intense. So from somebody on the other side, uh, I'm seeing more and more fundraising efforts going on that follow in the wake of every hurricane, every volcano, so on and so forth. 
but you're yeah. in the ground in these different locations. So I'd be curious to hear how, how you see a lot of these funds that are being generated or granted, how are they actually spent in the effective? Mm -hmm. Totally. So it really depends on whether we're talking about the traditional grant making agencies, the USAIDs, FEMAs, um, you know, and big, the big foundations that give money after the storm or the bottom up fundraising campaigns, those GoFundMes that are, that are put on or started by individuals in the community after the storm. And there are, on both sides of that equation, there are good, you know, there's money that gets spent well and, that there, and then there's money that gets spent less well or poorly, right? So part of the problem after disaster is that there's just a significant amount of chaos, right? And a lot of, within that chaos, a lot of waste occurs both from the top-down grant-making agencies, the ones that are giving money to the big NGO, nonprofit implementing partners to go out and support, you know, health clinics, do direct services, get bottled water into the community, do life-saving support and early recovery programming, as well as the bottom-up groups that are formed, you know, in terms of like peer-to-peer community response so the you'll see the gofundmes that say you know hey i'm in in puerto rico i'm in this neighborhood we we're trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars to deliver you know x amount of aid to my surrounding community um it's i've found that there's good ways you know there's pros and cons of both both strategies right there are really good local actors that if given the right amount of right money and the right resources and the right tools, they can do their, you know, response better than the big, uh, you know, more behemoth agencies that come in to, to support, do direct relief or, or like, you know, body recovery and all that other stuff. But within that, there's certain things that we don't want local community groups doing. We don't want you know, it's not safe to have a local community group try to try to do search and rescue after an earthquake, right? That's only going to create more um, risk to an already vulnerable population. So it doesn't make, we want to give the resources and the money and the tools to international search and rescue agencies to do that work. So I think it really depends. Um, and I'd say for community resiliency and basic you know, needs assessments, basic peer to, you know, neighbors going around checking on the other neighbors, making sure that they have enough water, that their refrigerator's working if they're a, a diabetic and need to store their insulin. That stuff is really well, you know, done well by local community groups. The more technical response, search and rescue, um, you know, helicopter or air support, that type of stuff is, needs to happen with in coordination with the humanitarian community that you know has a lot of experience doing direct relief after a storm i mean that's part of the it's kind of the civil military relationship right some of this stuff needs to be done by by bodies that are really highly trained and other pieces of the of the response need to be done by groups that know the local communities and if you could connect those two pieces the really highly trained international groups with the locally well-known community groups that's where the magic happens so you've got this awesome perspective because you've been 
a an on the ground responder. You're coordinating this uh, the footprint project efforts, and you're jumping into all these different disaster zones, regardless of if it's a hurricane or a fire, a tsunami, and you're also dealing in different cultural contexts. So, I'd like to hear about you know what what do you see that hinders communities' abilities to respond in the wake of a disaster, and what supports a community's ability to healthfully respond to a natural disaster? The, the biggest hindrance after a disaster for a local community, there, it depends, It really based on the phase, right? Whether you're talking 24 hours to two weeks or three weeks after, to where, you know, the, a lot of that is basic life needs, um, emergency services, and evacuation for the critically ill and injured, right? So that is the sooner you can get the roads cleared and the people that are sick, ill, or you know, injured or unfortunately dead out of the the space, the faster you can get the local the local people that are that have the time, energy, physical capacity to participate in the recovery. Um, give them the space to do the, the work with their local, uh, with their peers and their, and their neighbors and their friends. So I think once you're past that, hey, we're the, the trees are out of the road, the bodies are out of the street, um, and the, there's some amount of power, water, and food available for people that are still there, um, that, that, then it then it then you transition over to a hey let the community groups tell us what they need and let the international risk humanitarian aid community work to support the the local groups and give them you know let them let the local groups speak tell them what they tell tell the international aid community what they need and then uh, really support the local groups to give them the tools they need to, to, to participate. Is that a trend you're seeing more of, uh, more of a, a human-centered design approach to disaster response? Absolutely, just because there's more and more communication. So you can do, you know, once your Twitter feed is back up, a rural, you know, farm collective in Puerto Rico can tweet the Jose Andres, right, the celebrity chef, and that's how one of the, you know, World Central Kitchen was able to coordinate massive amounts of food and now long-term recovery, you know, farm resiliency programming in Puerto Rico. It's that, that decentralization of the, of the, you know, aid sector is, I think, a really, really positive thing. It, the only worry there is that you want to make sure that there, there are the the pieces of the aid puzzle that are super technical are still you know in the hands of people that know what the heck they're doing so you don't want people running into a burning building who aren't firefighters of course of course so so what are some of the other trends that are giving you hope when it comes to the sector that you're playing in yeah well for for me personally within the just our work at the footprint project we're I think it's really exciting to see the 
communities after disasters demanding for better response systems. So particularly in the energy sector, Hurricane Maria was one of the first disasters that I'm aware of where the communities themselves said, we don't want the power lines back the way we know those power lines were, were, you know, vulnerable and expensive. And we were without power for, you know, some communities up to eight months. So don't build, you know, don't give us generators and don't give us power lines, give us solar panels and batteries and we'll do the rest, which is, I think a really, really exciting trend. And I think, Particularly in Puerto Rico, there was a couple of reasons why that happened. One, because the, the diesel supply chains were really difficult. Um, you know, after in, in Florida or Virginia or some of the other storms that we saw this fall, there was not as much of a demand for solar batteries just because the grid comes back online faster. Diesel's easier to, to ship in by truck. So you're not seeing those extended grid outages where, where people can really see the payoff of solar storage. But I, th I think that as climate emergencies get progressively more intense and you know, last longer and affect a broader community, you know, area of, of particularly the U.S., um, we're going to see more and more citizens demanding uh, effective and sustainable recovery plan. There's... There's disasters all over the world. How is Footprint Project going about selecting which ones to to focus on? <laughs> Short answer, yeah. Um, capacity and money. So we go where we can find money to support our efforts. Right. We raise money from grants and individual donations, and that those donations come in based on where you know where the people want us to go that are giving us money we go um we are not big enough to to really strategically or more strategically choose our locations we've particularly been you know focused on puerto rico and domestic united states because we're based in minnesota um shipping lithium-ion batteries is a internationally is a huge hassle and we you know there's a lot of constraints to so far to building out a you know international disaster response team focused on nano grids we'd love to get there in the next few years but for now we're going to focus on our backyard and because you're you're connected to kind of the international conversation around disaster recovery do you see that there's a certain type of disaster that is not responded to or not uh, donated to as much as others? Like, do hurricanes generate more public interest and in donations than a volcano eruption? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's probably, and I'm also not the disaster, like, that's like almost a collective psychology question. Um, and I think it really depends on, again, you, I think you're talking, talking about the bottom-up donations, the individuals that see, you know, on their Facebook profile or whatever that say, you know, I'm going to donate 20 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever to support a, the, the immediate response versus the big government donor agencies, USAID, DFID, ECHO, you know, these big, Europe, the regional um, funding bodies that support uh, the 
the 27-ish billion dollars of aid that gets distributed each year. Um, so from the collective like bottom-up fundraising or individual donation piece, I'd say it's very, probably more geographic and based on like weird internet algorithms now. You know what I mean? Like some some Puerto Rico got a lot of attention because we it was right in our backyard and it was a an acute on chronic disaster, right? So we, there was problems already, and then Hurricane Irma hit, and then Hurricane Maria hit, and then people without power for eight months to a year. But a lot of the traditional aid was already slated for Houston because Houston had gotten hit by the floods like a couple weeks before Puerto Rico got. Um, affected so it's a lot of the traditional or attention attention got diverted to houston and then there was very little aid left from the tradition you know traditional actors to to go to puerto rico so i think it's kind of almost impossible to say where which ones get attention and which ones don't i think it's probably a a, a really interesting collective psychology question because i mean let's be honest right now we're still seeing famine across east africa you know south sudan's not in great shape there's the ebola ongoing ebola plus violent conflict in the drc that has received virtually no attention from u.s media um so there i mean you could pick any region of the world and and look at you know the the humanitarian ongoing humanitarian crises there uh, you know, the refugee crisis uh, in Europe from migration across uh, the, the Mediterranean. There's, there's no shortage of, of crises. <laughs> the question is where, where, which ones get attention and when. Why are you doing this work? What, what motivated you to address this problem? Yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> I was working in 2016, I was working as a medic during the Ebola outbreak in Kenya, and we had money from the, the, the group I was working for, uh, International Medical Corps had a grant from the CDC to do uh, lab specimen transport mechanisms. So setting up the training and equipment and infrastructure for transferring blood samples from rural clinics to uh, Conakry, the capital of Guinea, to be tested, um, and we had funding to 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 buy diesel generators and then pay for gas over a period of a year uh, to power refrigerators to store blood samples before sending them to the capital. Uh, we, I asked the CDC if we could spend more money up front to do solar storage for the refrigerators, and they said yes. Um, and the light bulb kind of went off for me on why this, if we can implement sustainable solutions using, you know, in these contexts, using the right tools, we can really leave people with a, the technology and the infrastructure to, to, to truly develop through a disaster, which is really exciting. I also think that if we can leapfrog the grid with every disaster, we're, we're, we're really, it's the only way we're gonna make it. I mean, if we can't, if we can't build back better, it's, it's gonna be a rough 21st century.
every time there's a disaster, there's a group of heroes like yourself that rushes to that location and begins uh, hands-on direct service to these communities from a logistical standpoint or a more uh, tactical standpoint. But for those of us who don't have the uh, the stomach, the time, the whatever it takes to, to get there, what recommendations do you have for how we can provide support? <laughs> well, first of all, I wouldn't call us all heroes. Some of us are just adrenaline junkies or uh, in looking for something or running from something. So, but the, I would say the, the, there are a lot of good resources for how to give effectively. Um, no one likes to hear it, but the best way if you're, you know, to support a comprehensive disaster recovery program is cash. That's all of the research says, give cash, don't give things. Um, there are whole think tanks developed to, around how to effectively deliver humanitarian aid. And from the bottom up fundraising perspective, the actors, you know, the organizations that are working in the crisis can use cash most effectively. So if you look at like the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, there's a lot of good research around how donations of cash can really jumpstart a recovery because it offers the organization's flexibility on addressing on the ground needs. While if you're spent, if you're spending your time in a disaster zone, like sorting old used t-shirts, um, you're wasting time and energy. The, that is always not, you know, no one likes to, I feel like people like their tact, you know, hands-on aid. They like to go in their garage and be like, someone's going to need this thing that I once had. I just need to get it there. Um, the reality is that if, if you're, if you're giving for the community who's been affected and not giving to make yourself feel good, the best way to do it is to give money to an organization you trust. So where can people learn more about you, your team, and the work you're doing? Right at our website, uh, www.footprintproject.org. Uh, we, we've got a couple projects in the works right now, um, specifically in Puerto Rico. We're also uh, raising money for our 2019 response plan. Um, and we know that hurricane season, wildland firefighting season, um, there are coming around the corner. So we are trying to build out our capacity to respond. We, we act very carefully with very um, with our very limited resources. We choose our projects very carefully. Um, and if you if anyone would like to get involved, either by donating or their time or money, we are always looking for help. I'm sitting here in Northern California. Our fire season keeps getting longer and stronger. So I'd be interested in volunteering time for you guys. What would that look like? What would that entail? It really depends on your skills, right? So in terms of volunteering time, we need help with data collection around what organizations locally you, you know, what size generators they use, how much fuel they're burning in an average response, and how much money they're spending on fuel, right? Those data points will help us design 
and fundraise for the appropriately sized nanogrids for a region. Um, the other piece is if you're a, a skilled electrician or a solar energy expert, we're building a roster of, res of solar responders that can support the installation of nanogrids after, um, after crises. For us, aside from those two pieces, we need help with communications and um, public relations. No one likes, um, you know, everyone says like social media. We always need help with social media. Um, it, if that's something people, you or someone is interested in, that's a, a really, would be really helpful. But our, our mission is so niche that we are careful about onboarding volunteers to donate time if we don't aren't if we aren't sure we can appropriately put your skills to use in within our our mission statement so we we try to really we're, we try to be careful about bringing on volunteers if we don't if we aren't sure where they can be used but in terms of data you know anyone can go out to their local response organizations in their community and and ask hey what's your power you know plant what's your portfolio of of you know, generators and fuel usage and, you know, what is your plan for offering sustainable power after a storm? Like what, what happened, what, what are you going to use? What's your resiliency plan? I mean, those are engaging in your, your local community groups is, is not something that needs to be done through the footprint project, but could be super helpful for enacting sustainable recovery after a storm or a whatever incident. I really appreciate your specific and kind of grounded response to that because I know so many people after the wildfires we had here in Sonoma County wanted to do something. Um, and so having some expert advice and suggestions is really helpful. I really appreciate all the time you spent today telling some of the stories, giving us insights into the work you're doing. It's, it's fascinating. It's so needed. I think it's a part of disaster relief and community resilience that I know myself, I don't think too much about. So before we let you go, do you have any last words, suggestions, or calls to action? Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's uh, really fun to, to, to participate here. Um, I, I guess my you know, last comment would be there are really a, a lot of different ways to get engaged with the work, whether it's you know, donating time or money or it, you know, doing more research or going to your local community you know, you know, network meeting, setting up resiliency plans for your neighborhood. Um, that I, I just say that, that there's um, the biggest risk is that people get complacent and people get, you know, apathetic. So if if you're interested in doing, you know, participating in recovery, there there is a space for almost every skill. You just need to find the right group. For example, there, there's a group in Minnesota called the Ham Radio Operators Network for the for the comms nerds out there, and I love them because they literally save lives after storms. They deployed down to Puerto Rico when the communications networks were were still severely damaged, and they were able to use ham radios to to coordinate delivery of aid. Um, some people would call that like really nerdy or odd, but they, my point is, is that there's a, there are 
response and recovery groups for almost every um, niche need. And you don't necessarily have to deploy in person. There are um, groups that allow virtual deployment. So working with maps or working on Excel tables to coordinate you know, del aid delivery or supply delivery or flights for the people that are actually responding. So there are, there are a lot of ways to involve yourself that don't necessarily m mean that you have to get on a plane and um, respond within 72 hours. Um, and so if you're interested, uh, Google it. There's, there's plenty of work to be done. Haven't been hit by a natural disaster? Lucky you. For now. As the climate patterns we've come to expect become increasingly erratic, it's vital that we as individuals, neighborhoods, communities, and countries have the knowledge, resources, and abilities to respond and recover from Mother Nature's wrath. Like Will highlighted, a tweet can connect the haves to the have-nots. The moneyed can ensure their dollars are making a difference. The electrical wizards can ensure logistics are properly coordinated and neighbors can act as the glue for recovery efforts. We all have a part to play in ensuring our communities are able to rebound from the horrors of natural disasters. And what I love about what the Footprint Project is doing is they are ensuring that these horrific events, they're turning them into opportunities to rebuild more sustainably and more resiliently. And if we can do this, then we can ensure our future is brighter than our past when it comes to the infrastructure of our communities. A big thanks to my buddy Jay Lately for providing the music and the sponsorship of the Onward podcast. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist out of Oakland who dedicates his time to enriching the lives of youth in Oakland and around the states through his music, through his words, and through his poetry. Interested in sponsoring the podcast yourself? Get at me, dweinsveg at gmail.com. That's D-W-E-I-N-Z-V-E-G. And last but certainly not least, a huge thanks to all my listeners, all my followers, and all my supporters. Make sure to subscribe to Onward at soundcloud.com backslash onward. Find us at the iTunes podcast store or Anchor FM. And if you would be so kind as to leave a review, a little words, a few stars go a long way. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Onward. Until next time, Onward and Upward. <laughs>